when I first launched the awards in 2015, there was significant ridicule throughout the industry, significant. Um, and some of those uh, those loudest in, in their criticism have now become some of our most vocal supporters. G'day and welcome to episode 61 of the Humans of Agriculture podcast. I'm your host, Ollie Laleve. And I'm not going to say this week we're doing things differently because I swear I say that every episode. In true to form, we are continuing to celebrate the diverse and vast opportunities that exist in agriculture. But today, I'm excited to announce that we're launching a series as part of the Antola Trading New Work Shirt range. Every one of their work shirts is named after an influential man, woman or child who is having a remarkable impact, whether that's at their local community level or at the highest levels of our agriculture industry. As you'll find out, our guests are not your traditional people, uh, as you might see in agriculture. From diamond dealers in the Kimberleys to cattle grazers in Queensland, we'll be heading to the seas to share the story of oyster farmer who's doing things differently. The season will culminate at the end, sharing the stories of some extraordinary children and their families, and we'll be highlighting the crucial role that the Ronald McDonald House plays in the lives of kids and families from the bush. Like every week, I'd love to thank this episode's sponsor, LAWD, the specialist in agribusiness valuations and transactions. And I know you hear them every week, but they're not just another business in agriculture, LAWD, I guess. They really came on and believed in the vision and and the importance of what we're doing in terms of building and celebrating everything that is agriculture. So to John and the whole team, thank you. And you can check out more about their work and their people at www.lawd.com.au. Today's guest, Jane Thompson, is the founder and managing director of the Fabulous Ladies Wine Society, a wine community for women that connects people right across the supply chain from growers to consumers. She's also the founder and chair of the Australian Women in Wine Awards. The Australian Women in Wine Awards is the world's first and only awards platform for women in wine. Starting off her career in psychology before moving into public relations and communications, Jane has really found her feet. She's been recognised as an award-winning digital communicator and on top of the many accolades that she's had, Jane is also an author of The Fabulous Lady's Guide to Wine. I'm intrigued to, yeah, just starting off, if someone asks you at a dinner party, what do you do? How on earth do you address that question? As in, what do you do, Jane? That question. Yeah. So tell <laughs> um, me what you do. Yeah, tell me what it, well, um, it's an interesting question to answer this particular year, Ollie, because what I normally do and what I currently do, given the COVID situation, are very different things. So prior to the, the current pandemic, I would say that I worked as an advocate for women in the wine industry um, and also a, um, I guess, almost like an introduction agency for female wine consumers. So Basically, I worked doing events and tours and uh, online communications that joined female wine consumers and female wine producers together, often in real life and sometimes online. Yeah, wow. And I guess on top of the other things you're doing, so you, uh, you live up in Byron Bay, so it's not quite in a wine region. You're also a pecan and beef farmer as well. So you've, you wear an incredible number of hats. <laughs> 
That's right. And those things are all still true. So I'm not doing much events and tours at the moment, as you can imagine. Uh, so I'm getting very much stuck into my everyday life, which is we have 100 acres in the Byron hinterland. And um, before Farmer Wants a Wife was a TV show way back almost 20 years ago, I met my husband in Sydney and I was a Sydney girl born and bred. And he was from this very farm that we live on. So uh, we came back to live here almost 20 years ago. And our three girls that we've brought up here are the sixth generation to occupy this farm yeah wow how how's the Byron region changed since you guys got back there significantly so when I first moved up from Sydney nearly 20 years ago I was living in the inner city I was very uh spoilt for choice in terms of fantastic quality food and dining experiences and I used to fly home regularly with my small babies to visit my family who was still down there and I'd return I'd take an empty suitcase with me Ollie and I'd return from Sydney with it filled with things like sourdough bread and (laughs) (laughs) and different spices and condiments that I could couldn't get up here because online shopping of course was fairly non-existent back then also but the fact I couldn't even get sourdough bread and now I think we're the capital of all fermented products so (laughs) there's really change yeah (laughs) I'd love to know on that what was the shift like was it very romanticized going from and Byron of all places is incredibly picturesque so yeah what was it like doing the shift to to country living um, it took me about two years to really adjust, uh, given that I'd, I'd been a Sydney girl all my life until that point. Uh, when we moved up, uh, almost as I said, almost 20 years ago now, there was no huge obsession with Byron Bay and the region like there is today. That's all fairly new. So that's another big change that we've seen in terms of who it's attracting and the numbers that it's attracting and the overall national and international reputation that it's developed in that time. It was always known as a great holiday spot, but not really known as an amazing place to live like it is now. Um, And so there was not much romanticising on my part. That was more... um, I guess, an adventure that I was ready to tackle and to experience. Uh, And as I said, it took me almost two years to adjust to that, not being able to walk out my front door and get a fresh loaf of sourdough or even just a carton of milk. Uh, You know, it's a good 10-kilometre trip in the car just up to the nearest general store. With that said, we're not isolated at all. I mean... Um, we, we do have access to fantastic services and facilities and infrastructure. And so really it was just a spoilt girls, spoilt Sydney girls adjustment period. I'm sure for many people it would have been much quicker. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I think it's gone leaps and bounds. Now you're probably at the other where you wish you could be a bit, bit further than 10 goes out. <laughs> yeah, some days, yes. <laughs> I'd, I'd love to know. So obviously, yeah, you're now on the farm and you've built a career in, in the wine industry, but you actually started off your career as a psychologist uh, and in organisation psychology. So was that something, an area which really interested you or, or what took you down that path? Um, I studied psychology accidentally at uni. So I got to the end of year 12. I did very well. I didn't want to do medicine or law. Um, At that stage, uh, psychology at the University of New South Wales was hard to get into and looked interesting and I had the right subjects. It was that simple. So I thought I'd give it a try. I ended up loving it. Um, And for me, what was interesting was the way that Uh, communication and behaviour was so closely linked. That's the part that I really enjoyed. Um, And so I didn't really want to go down the track of uh, counselling psychology 
or clinical psychology, I really pursued organisational psychology and in particular language. So my thesis was all about language and the way that the brain parses different syllables within words and how that can determine whether you're a great reader or an average reader. I was really fascinated by this. And so after a few years in, in org psych in Sydney, um, we moved up here when we had a small baby and there's no organisations big enough to hire that sort of psychologist. Uh, and so I moved sideways just into more pure communications after that. Yeah, right. Yeah, I was going to say, based off that, it's kind of a natural evolution. And what have you found that you've been able to translate from that psych world into, yeah, some of these smaller businesses? What's kind of stood out for you? Well, everything. So I always say to people that it's probably the best foundational uh, degree or subject to study for everything in life because it really provides fantastic perspective as to what people's behaviour really means. You know, often people behave in a way that um, is very incongruent to what they might be thinking or believing uh, and so, and or even what they... Um, you know, what they actually want to portray. And so having that really great understanding of what motivates people, what kind of language helps steer certain behaviours, um, it's helped every kind of career path I've taken, as well as the parenting role that I've had as well so over the last 20 years. So it's really helped everything, I think. Real, because, yeah, it's the part I think, like obviously in marketing and, and trying to connect people with humans of agriculture, it, it's the psychology piece which really interests me. It's like, and I think whether it's getting a guest on, but actually then trying to convey that message to an audience, it's like, well, why are they thinking that way? How have they come to think that? And how do you kind of translate that to others? So it's um, fascinating. And I kind of, I love it from the, the psych piece. It's, it is so much of how people think and why do they think that way ultimately yeah. that drives anything, whether it's how they accept information or, build loyalty towards a, a business exactly. or brand. Exactly. And most, you know, most therapy that people do is about, you know, sharing their story and looking at their story differently and being able to retell their story or reshape their story internally into a way that is more healing and brings understanding and that sort of thing. So communication is at the key to, to even understanding our own selves. I'd love to jump into that because obviously we're, I'd say, a storytelling platform and it's something which I've I suppose it makes me feel a little bit uncomfortable saying that, yeah, I'm a storyteller as such. But where's the, where did the realisation come for you in the power of, I guess, your own story in building connection and, yeah, understanding with other people? Um, well, I think as humans, uh, that building connection is fundamental to who we are and it's connection that makes us healthy both inside and out, they have, you know, data will show you that people who are lonely actually end up having and, and lack connection actually end up having physiological responses to that, um, you know, increased risk of heart disease, increased risk of stroke, increased overall risk of death comes from something as simple as loneliness. So human connection and human connectivity is absolutely primal to who we are um, and being able to uh, harness that, appreciate that and develop those skills as well as recognising just how important it is. So to prioritise it in your life, um, I think is something that 
I'm always, I've always been fascinated in, I really value and I bring to uh, even something like the Fabulous Ladies Wine Society. You know, that's all about human connectivity, bringing people together and then communicating about wine in a way that's inclusive, that creates relationships, that is... Um, making people feel valued, all of those things are very fundamental to what I do in my normal business. And I think it's been the secret to why the Fabulous Ladies Wine Society started off being something that that was online, was going to purely be online, and within 12 months actually became a real-life events and tours company. That's how important that connection was, I think, to people who were involved. And have you found amongst your members this year, the last 12 or so months, have you guys gone backwards um as a business or yeah community uh, yeah, look, I don't want to sugarcoat it. It's been absolutely catastrophic. So um, last year, we kind of just managed to scrape through after cancelling and postponing 12 months worth of events and tours, including international tours, you know, they're not cheap to do. Um, and so then we sort of, I sort of put my head down and um, waited, waited it out like most other people and took the plunge around March, beginning of April, well, first of all, when JobKeeper stopped, uh, and secondly, because the um, the advice at the time from all levels of government and business was that the second half of 2021 was when everything was going to be starting back up again. And so I started to plan for the second half of this year, more tours, more events, and really get going again. And I had a lot of support from our members, so much support, um, and we held two events, one in Sydney and one in Melbourne. And I've then spent uh, the last six weeks cancelling and postponing everything else that we have planned for the next few months. So um, it's, yeah, it's been very brutal. But look, I don't, I certainly don't feel alone. There's going to be thousands of stories like mine out there. You know, 18 months, we had a very valuable, very thriving business with several staff. And right now we don't. So, um, yeah, there's, there's going to be lots of people, not just in agriculture, but across the board for whom this is a very, very tough time. Yeah. Now, like I've been, I've been thinking about it a bit myself as well. Like there's been opportunities or there's one in Victoria. Hi, I'm Pia, horticulture and sugar analyst at Rabobank, and I'm here to share our latest insights on Australia's vegetable market. Did you know in 2023, Australia produced over $5.8 billion worth of vegetables, though only 4.3% of this was exported. Like many other countries, the Australian vegetable industry relies mostly on its domestic market. In fact, only 7% of global vegetables produced are traded between countries. But we are starting to see that trend change. Global trade is growing at a faster rate than production, and countries with low cost production are seeing the highest growth rates. You can learn more about trends in the vegetable market on our latest Rabo Research Australia podcast, Mapping World Vegetable Trade, or reach out to me via the Rabobank Australia social media channels to learn more. I'm, I'm based in Sydney now, of all places. Um, there's one in Sydney, there's one up in Queensland, and it's like, well, even as a small business, um, like the opportunities that, to actually grow and progress the business, like many of these events are every 12 months or sometimes every second year like it's I think the ramifications kind of and the flow-on effects will be real and there's only so much you can do over zoom um when it comes to I suppose growing a business isn't it 
you you can't I mean and this is where again that idea of human connection comes in and I think we've all realized over the last 18 months as you've just touched on Zoom doesn't replace actual face-to-face human connection in any way and so what you see every time there's a lockdown and a reopening is people you know racing out to see each other and to celebrate being together Um, and certainly a business like mine which relies on face-to-face interaction and and gathering um, you know can't exist at a time like this uh, when those things are being sort of stopped and started, stopped and started, stopped and started. I mean, just this week, I'm thinking about everybody um, not far north of me in um, Brisbane where the ECHA was cancelled just with days to go uh, the second year in a row. And, you know, as you say, some of those people, that's a once a year gig for them so for the second time in a row that's been cancelled and I can't imagine the financial as well as personal and mental health fallout from that sort of experience yeah that's all too common I I do want to jump in and I'm wondering if uh you talk a lot about the human connection the wine piece where where did the interest um in in that industry come from Sure. So um, I grew up with a father who was a very active and passionate wine consumer. And then when I was in my very early teens, he actually went and bought a vineyard and started making wine in the Hunter Valley under his own label. Um, He didn't make the wine himself. He brought in a winemaker. He wasn't that arrogant, but he... Um, he certainly studied his own labour. And so that had a big influence on me, I think. And um, I certainly became an enthusiastic wine consumer myself and discovered that as a woman, that was actually hard because there were very few events and very few wine experiences where I felt included and valued. And even so, even, you know, an an experience, so I'm in my mid forties, Ollie. So as a young woman in her twenties, only 20 years ago, going out to a restaurant, um, if I had a, a man with me, I was never handed the wine list. That just would never have happened. And so on its own, that single action is not particularly noteworthy. But when it's part of a societal norm, what that says is women don't really know much about wine. (laughs) We're going to hand it to the man because he clearly knows more. And so that kind of, that kind of, um, cultural acceptance was pretty widespread. And so as I, as I became more and more interested in wine, I noticed that that culture was quite pervasive. And even if I would go to a wine dinner or a wine event, my question was rarely um, asked or valued. Uh, I didn't feel comfortable kind of having those open chats which where men seemed to feel very comfortable doing that. Um, and I just didn't feel like it was a space where I had agency. I guess. And I thought maybe it was just a me thing, but then having some conversations around this with several of my um, girlfriends who I respect, who are successful professionals in their own right, they confessed a similar feeling. They just didn't feel like it was a platform where they had any agency when they went to any of these wine things. So I thought, why don't we just do our own? So socially, we started getting together and doing our own sort of wine nights and wine chats and wine discussions. And people went, this is actually really good. Jane, you should make this a thing. And so that is how the Fabulous Ladies Wine Society was born. Can I ask, so where it goes from being encouraged from your friends to turn it from this is fun, it's social, we're all having our input to actually then creating something from it. 
Was it, was it oh. a no, was it a no brainer that you went down that path, or were you thinking, "Holy shit, it seems like a good idea," but I don't actually want to do it. <laughs> yeah, and that's a really good question. I actually wanted to do it, but I didn't know how to monetize it. Um, so uh, that was with some trial and error. I worked out uh, how to do that profitably, um, and you know, I basically worked almost for free for the first twelve or eighteen months, proving my mettle. I felt like I could do this well, and I felt like I could give real value to wine companies that wanted to work with me but it was a bit of an unknown thing because most wine companies running a wine event they do that for free or you know they 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 partner with their distributor or a venue and the winemaker turns up and you know there's not a huge cost to them uh, occasionally they might hire a wine host but that's a very occasional thing where here I was demanding thousands of dollars to come and do a wine event with me it took a couple of years but uh, eventually the, the companies that were working with me who perhaps I did work for for free to start with went actually what she was able to deliver was worth a lot and we're, we're happy to pay you, Jane. Um, and so I proved myself within that sort of 12 to 18 month period and now I've got this fantastic, fantastic group of clients that I work with and it becomes a very um, difficult thing to schedule how many events they want to do each year because there's, there's so much demand now, which is a fantastic problem to have, of course, when we, yeah. can, when we can be running events, when we can be. And what else, what, the other thing that was significant that happened in being able to monetize this business and turn it into a profitable entity was the very early realisation that it wasn't just female wine consumers who were having a tough time, it was women in the industry. <laughs> and so uh, quite early on, I decided, very early on, I worked this out and, and decided to make the business specifically only for women in the wine industry to be part of. And so that's that, that jokey kind of definition of an introduction agency is what we became, you know, putting the sisterhood to work by bringing in women who produce wine and introducing them to women who love wine and vice versa. Because that's a part I'm really fascinated because you kind of nearly have two target markets. You've got the yeah. consumer end and then you've got people in the industry. So in terms of conversations, there's the industry level, but then there's kind of a broader piece. How did you go about setting up and having, yeah, well, connecting those dots and was there one that led the way and the other followed? Yes, there was. So I decided that to monetize the business, probably the best model at the time was to create a really big database of consumers and then ask wine brands to pay to play. That's what I thought was going to be the most successful model. And it turns out that's what has worked quite well so far. Um, so I... Uh, you know, I focused on developing our membership base and whenever you become a member of the Fabulous Ladies Wine Society, it's still completely free to do so. Um, and it's the wine brands who then pay to access that audience that we have created, I guess in a similar way to almost any other publishing platform, really. Um, so, you know, if you're advertising your wine in Gourmet Traveller Wine magazine, that's what you're doing. You're paying for that audience. Uh, for me, that's what they're doing. They're paying for an audience, but that audience isn't reading them off the page. They're actually interacting with them in real life most of the time when we're doing events and tours. Yeah, wow. Well, uh, I think I, I've struggled so much in terms of the humans of ag. If you're to like the commercial model as such, when it comes to connecting people. So with your events, are they run under the fabulous ladies wine society or? Yeah, okay. no, they are. Yeah, they run as a fabulous ladies wine society event. 
with and then the winery. So, so people go, oh, I, you know, I'm coming to a Fab Ladies wine event. I know what that's going to be like. Which winery are we going to be introduced to this time? Uh, and sometimes it's a repeat visit. So, for example, um, you might be a member in Melbourne. You might come along to an event we run with a particular winery. That winery might do another event in Melbourne three years later and you go, oh, great, I remember them being fantastic. I'm actually now already a member of that winery. I like them so much. Last time I was in that area, I went to their cellar door. And so I know this is going to be amazing because it's a Fab Ladies wine event and it's now a favourite brand of mine that I was introduced to through them several years ago. So the relationship builds. Interesting. Do you, do you have ambitions of creating a global platform from it or are you very much happy at home? No, I did. <laughs> I did. And um, we had some expansion plans that were just about to launch. Uh, actually, April 2020 was when we had that scheduled to launch. So we oh. were just weeks away from a bit of an expansion thing. Um, who knows if that'll happen again? Life's never quite fair. So we'll just see how that plays out. Entola Trading was established in 2015. Their founder, Alicia McClarment from far north Queensland, set about creating work shirts slightly differently. Made from Australian cotton, every single shirt has a story and they are tied to the most inquisitive and fascinating people that rural Australia has to offer. You can check out their whole range at www.entolatrading.com and for every shirt that's sold as part of this series, Entola will be donating $2 to the Ronald McDonald House in Brisbane. To find out more, you can check out the show notes below. In, in terms of the idea, so I was having a bit of a, a research and a read on you. So you headed over to a US um, Women in Wine. It was a global event and you were the only Australian that was, was there. Why do you think Australia is behind when it comes to things like this? Is it just we don't have the numbers or are we just vague with what's happening kind of out there? So in 2015, I went to this Global Women in Wine Symposium um, in California, but like so many American world or global events, it was really just an American event. Yeah. <laughs> might be like the World Series baseball. And um, <laughs> there were a few guests from overseas. There were a few guest speakers and a few women from Europe had flown over, but I would say 85 to 90% of everybody there was American. But what I saw was this huge huge uh, understanding and realisation that um, action needed to be taken in order to try and address many of the issues that um, women were having in the US in terms of trying to work within the wine industry over there. And I recognised those as being very similar issues as to what was happening here in Australia. And I thought, well, if they can do something, we can do something. Um, But I didn't want to... What, what I went to over there was like a conference, like a three-day conference. And I thought, well, I actually want to facilitate rapid change here in Australia. I don't think a conference is the best way to do that because you're just getting lots of women along. We're just talking to ourselves when really the people we need to talk to are the people in positions of power and those people are usually men. And so I thought, what's an alternative to, to, to doing something that is going to facilitate that sort of change I want to see? And I thought, an awards program. Why not an awards program? Because if you are championing women in an industry, 
you're going to get the attention of the people in power in that industry because they need to hire great people, right? They want to hire great people. So if you're telling stories and you're really shining the spotlight on women who are performing incredibly well in that industry, then suddenly you're, you're creating attention for them and you're also shining a story on their, sorry, shining a spotlight on their particular stories. So they can actually have this platform to say, well, yeah, things have been pretty average for me and um, here's some of the things I've never been able to talk about before because it's never looked on well when you're trying to get promotions to, to you know to bring up things that have happened but this is what's happened for me and despite all this I've been able to achieve xyz so we started the women in wine awards in 2015 not long after I got back from that first US conference um, and we ran, we ran it until even last year we ran it so uh, for six years in a row and two of those years um, it was I guess quite quickly, quite quickly it became so successful that uh, Wine Australia um, partnered with us twice and took the awards program overseas to showcase the talent and the stories of the women in the Australian wine industry to a couple of their key export markets. So in 2017, we took it to London uh, and in 2019, we took it to New York and had a full pink carpet New York experience. It was pretty amazing. How cool. That was what I was going to ask. Was there, was there a moment, obviously there's those big ticket items, but somewhere along that journey of bringing uh, the wine awards to life where you thought, oh my God, like what have I created and how, how good is this to see that the people who deserve the recognition celebrated? Absolutely. I mean, to me, I think the older you get, the more you realise that uh, contribution and legacy are probably the two most important things. And I feel like it's the most important thing I've ever done professionally in my life. Um, you know, it's really, I think, tipped the balance in favour of creating an awareness around gender diversity in the Australian wine industry. And certainly policy has been developed as a result of the conversations and the awareness that have happened uh, since the awards were created in 2015. I have to say that it's certainly not all my own doing. So when I got back and I had this idea, I thought, well, I can't do it myself. And um, I wonder if I can get a bit of a board together to, to try and make it happen. And I've had a fantastic fantastic board of people of mostly women and a few men um, over the years there's been some people who've been there the entire time there's been some other people who've rolled through you know doing a couple of years before moving on and they've all brought quite incredible and unique contributions which have led to the success of the awards and globally we are recognized as well because nowhere else holds an awards program for women in wine except Australia so in 2019, uh, we were invited over to Milan in Italy to kind of talk about our experience as part of a huge wine conference over there that was also looking at the role of women in the wine industry. So it's certainly, oh, wow. yeah, certainly led to some pretty amazing experiences. Absolutely. God, open the borders so you can take on the world again. Yeah. <laughs> That'd be great. Could you arrange that? Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> so obviously the women um, in the industry weren't overly celebrated as such or all recognized what's the industry like or what was it like for for young people and really championing young people in the wine industry look i'm not specifically across sort of the youth element so only the gender the, the gender situation ollie but um what i can tell you is that it's been pretty dire for australian women over the years so um we don't actually have a current official count 
of the participation of women except through the Australian census, which again we're about to do for, for 2021, where people list what their industry is that they work in. But what we do know from a study that was done about six or seven years ago now is that women in senior roles in particular are very, very low um, when, it, when you're looking at roles like winemaking and viticulture, senior winemaking and viticulture. It's actually at 10% and 9% respectively. Um, and with viticulture, that was in decline. That number was in decline. So we're hoping that that's been reversed since then. We're hoping that the, that decline has, has turned around. We don't know for sure because, again, we just don't have the research and we don't have the numbers counted for us. Um, but what I do know is that... Um, the conversation and the awareness and the um, acceptance that it is an issue has certainly in these last six or seven years that I've been involved with the Women in Wine Awards had a huge turnaround. So when I first launched the awards in 2015, there was significant ridicule throughout the industry, significant. Um, and some of those uh, those loudest in, in their criticism have now become some of our most vocal supporters. So to see that real turn has been very satisfying. I was going to ask around, yeah, critics. Um, and obviously it sounds like the, the needle's starting to shift, hopefully, um, with industry. What When it has come to the critics, how have you confronted those situations or, yeah, taken on those battles? Sure. Well, it's been real. So we started the Women in Wine Awards before the general zeitgeist um, had moved in that direction as well. So before the Me Too movement, before all of that, we started these awards. So it certainly was a bit of a what? Hang on. What are you saying? There's no issue. You know what? Well, there's no problem kind of a, a response from many in the wine industry. Um, I certainly have experienced significant, significant criticism that's gone beyond beyond professional criticism and uh, at one stage I had to keep a police file because of all the very violent and um, uh, I, what's the word violent and um, terrifying um, aggressive aggressive is what I'm looking for aggressive wow. Um, emails and uh, comments and, and posts that were being directed at me so and that's in the wine industry so, you know, I think, gosh, women who are putting themselves out there in much more public industries, you know, journalism and entertainment, I can't begin to imagine what they've copped over the years because just the very, very small taste that I've had was enough to bring me to tears on many occasions. So um, it's quite it's quite amazing when you ask any woman, and I've been doing so since that happened, that stuck her neck out on any in any industry for any reason uh, up until quite recently and even continuing on. I couldn't even say it stopped. It's not fully stopped, but it was way worse a few years ago. Um, that was just par for the course. That's just mm -hmm. what happens. Um, and so with the more legit legitimate criticism uh, that we, we copped early on professionally, that certainly died right back as people realized that this is not an um this is not an issue that's not there it's just an issue that's not talked about so as soon as people started talking about it more and sharing their experiences more quite similarly to the me too movement lots of people in the industry in the industry went what I didn't know you'd gone through that. I didn't know you'd suffered that. You never talked to me about that. We'd known each other for 20 years, you know. So there's been a silence on things and an invisibility rather than the fact that it didn't exist or didn't happen. And do you, do you think those, 
critics, the like the extremist critics, are they are they few and far between, or or was it somewhat surprising? As in the professional critics, or the just the the guy, the people from the cheap seats hurling rocks. <laughs> yeah, the ones. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, the ones in an arms throw. Oh, I suppose yeah, both. I don't know if they're few and far between. I, I mean, I don't know what the numbers are. All I know is that it was unexpectedly, um, it was unexpected uh, in terms of the level of criticism and, the, and that sort of uh, extreme sort of online stuff that you hear about. Mm. Uh, um, it was unexpected to get to that level. Uh, but, you know, any time that somebody does something a bit different, you are going to get criticism that's expected because people overall don't like change. This is the psychology coming back, you know. People yeah, don't yeah. like change. Uh, and so you have to be prepared for criticism and you have to, again, where communication comes back in, you have to work hard to communicate your position and then try and bring people on board with you to, to demonstrate that this is something get to, to worthy getting on board of and, um, you know, worthy of, of trying to change your perspective on things. So... I didn't, I didn't know that that was what I was going to be spending a lot of time doing when I embarked on this, but I'm certainly glad that my background in sight gave me the skills to understand what was happening and to apply what was needed, I think, to help bring people along with us for the ride. <laughs> yeah, to understand and analyse the, yeah. the situation. Do you, do you f- foresee a day when the wine awards or the women in wine awards become obsolete? Well, um, we hoped that it would only go for five years when we first started it. We gave it a five-year lifespan. And then in the sixth year, uh, which is when Wine Australia approached us about going to New York, we went, well, absolutely, let's keep going. Um, And then, you know, in 2020, we kept going. And now with the pandemic, we've had to stop it for this year. So it could be, you know, reasons beyond our control that... um, that actually lead to the end of the awards. We're not sure yet. At the moment, it's been paused for this year with the hope of being able to continue next year. But again, if we only had a crystal ball, right, as to what was going to happen. Mm. Wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> now, um, I'd love to, yeah, there's, there's a couple of questions which, well, I'll, I'll ask everyone. The first being, so around, um, this is part of the Antola series. So you've now got your own work shirt named after you. <laughs> With unexpected first time you've had a had a piece of clothing named after yourself. Yeah, I, yeah, totally. Who gets a pair? Who gets a shirt named after them? That's pretty cool. Um, and I love the fact. I don't think they realised when they when they did it, or maybe they did. Maybe I'll be corrected here, but they made it pink, which I love. So um, it's this great pink shirt, which is you know the colour of the Women in Wine Awards logo and everything. So it was quite pertinent that that's the one that they named after me I love it I think it's fantastic yeah cool they're unreal shirts aren't they they're really cool this was pink but not your average pink it's got like a jungle green trim like a palm leaf okay. jungle trim it's very cool not the high-vis workwear you think you have to wear right it's very cool <laughs> yeah, yeah and in terms of where people can find out more about the fabulous women in wine society geez it's a mouthful 
That's right. Fabulous Ladies Wine Society. That's okay. So the Fabulous Ladies Wine Society has a website, fabulousladieswinesociety.com. Also very active sort of social media presence as well. Normally. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Not much to report at the moment except lots of postponements and cancellations, unfortunately. Um, And the Women in Wine Awards as well is womeninwineawards.com.au. So that's paused for this year. But there's a whole bunch of information on there too, including a resources section on the website website that gives you a little bit of um i guess background as to why we're still fighting for overall gender equality in the wine industry and you know we are not unique in the agricultural world of course pretty much the entirety of agriculture is fighting its own gender diversity issue right now um i don't think it's any better or worse necessarily in the wine industry but what i do know is that culturally when um When blokes get together and drink, often things aren't pretty. And I think the wine industry has suffered a little bit in that regard, in that, um, you know, it's been an industry of um, big egos and lots of alcohol and it's been dominated by men for a long, long time. And so culturally I think that's had an impact and it's really great to be able to get in there and start changing that culture so that it's more inclusive, not just of gender, but, of course, all kinds of ethnic, race and backgrounds. yeah, I think it's a really important thing to do. Yeah, and that's a true mark of progress, isn't it? When changes up can be ugly and confronting, but ultimately when it comes to including more people and differences of views and opinions, it can only be for the better. Absolutely, 100% agree. A question which I ask every human of agriculture which comes on. So you're heading off to talk at a high school and I choose Year 10 students because I think they're, yeah, Year 10 is quite an interesting year. You've kind of got last few years of school and then you go off into the big wider world what would be some life advice you'd give to them but maybe more so as well if you could tailor it to why a career in agriculture should be something that they uh, could consider um that's a really good question and I have a year 10 person in my house right now so I can better bloody listen (laughs) (laughs) I can identify completely with that age group and sort of where they're at um The advice I would give is in terms of entering agriculture, I would highly recommend it because both from my work in wine, which is one type of agriculture, and with my work on the farm that I do here, which is another type of agriculture, you're working in an industry that is vital that sustains people. And so, you know, if you're looking for a career that has that gives you feelings of uh, doing something that's worthwhile, then you, it's very hard to go past agriculture. I mean, you're literally feeding people. Um, and in the wine industry, you're bringing so much joy to people. Uh, it's a very hard thing to, you know, it's a very, it's, it's a very easy thing to love. There's going to be no problems in finding, you know, something that's worthwhile in the world of agriculture to do. The other thing I love about it is that I can't sit still inside all day, Ollie. So I love being in an environment where I'm outside constantly. I'm in, you know, I'm in a natural environment. I'm in an environment where I've got, you know, the air, the sun, greenery all around me. And I didn't know that was important to me until clearly I've moved up here. Um, But now that I'm here and and I'm in it every day, I don't think I could go back anytime soon. It's become something that 
I need to have every day. I need to walk through that pecan orchard just to see how the trees are going and what's happening and how the ground's feeling, how much moisture retention's there, whether the nut development's looking good or not. Um, I need, you know, I've got horses. I need to go down and spend some time with them and see how they're going and how what sort of training needs they have. There's so much variety and so much of it's outside. I love it. Oh, it sounds like a shocking way to spend the days. <laughs> Well, Jane, thank you so much for yeah, being part of the Antola series, but for coming on and, and sharing your story in the background, because I think I would definitely be following you up for some further conversations, because I think what you've done is, yeah, incredible. Um, and, and just kind of, yeah, the passion behind what you're doing really flows through. Oh, thanks, Ollie. You've been a great interview. It's been a great <laughs> has to do and I'm so grateful to a company like Antola for really highlighting um, you know some work that's being done I guess behind the scenes in some of these agricultural fields it's such an honor thank you so much now I'm not sure if you guys could pick up or not as part of today's conversation but I was just so intrigued and and actually just wanted to pick Jane's brain on a number of different topics that she talked about as I think there's yeah it's, it's a really fascinating area where she's been able to kind of bring that whole supply chain together and in a way that people can understand uh, I, I guess that's the beauty that wine has where it can both be a celebration but also a learning experience and people really can follow the journey from the vineyard the whole way through if you'd like to find out more about Jane you can check out her Facebook page and Instagram in the show notes below, as well as her website. Next week, we'll be sitting down with oyster farmer Ewan McAsh. And as you'll learn, his journey started outside of the oyster industry, but he's really come in and with an entrepreneurial mindset, has not only built multiple businesses, but he's also founded tech companies that are shifting not just the oyster industry, but having crossover opportunities elsewhere. Look forward to sharing Ewan's story with you next Wednesday. In the meantime, stay safe, stay sane, look after yourselves, and if you ever want to ask any questions or get in touch, please reach out to us at Humans of Agriculture. <laughs>